Hey, could you do me a quick favour wherever you're listening to this or watching this from? Could you just hit the subscribe button? It honestly goes further than you'd imagine. Or leave it a quick review or a thumbs up. It also means that we can continue to bring on new exciting guests every week. So without further ado, I'm Liam Chick. I cannot wait to share this episode with you. So let's dive into this episode of The Online Disruptor. So Stina, when I read like someone's story who's like successful or someone who like wants to help others, I often and I come to the same sort of conclusion that that person's drive or like determination comes from like trauma or potential hurt that they've like experienced in my past. So I guess my first question to you is sort of what makes you driven to to want to help others? That's such a good question. I think for me, when I have gone through past traumas myself um, or any instances where I really did need a helping hand or or better advice at the time. I think that's the point. I think I always was, I always, I wish now if I, when I look back, especially at things like my abusive relationship that I was in, if somebody had turned around to me and pointed out the fact that I was in an abusive relationship or perhaps this is the, you know, this, you can get help to get out of this, that, you know, there are ways out, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. I would have saved a lot of heartache, a lot of trauma. You know, I would have just saved all all of that grief had somebody just highlighted certain little things to me, even like red flags, for example, you know, at the beginning of the relationship. So for me, I think I kind of take the stance of like, that would have helped me. And I kind of take, yeah, I guess for me, it's just confidence in knowing that what I can provide or hopefully that can help somebody and 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 save somebody because I wish that had happened for me just took me a long long time yeah definitely how old were you when you were in that abusive relationship I was in my really early 20s really early um he was a lot older than me um so yeah it kind of it kind of set the president of he was he was older and wiser and he knew better and i was just this young fun loving gal who didn't who was totally innocent didn't really know what i was sort of falling into because i was ultimately falling in love but i didn't realize quite who i was falling in love with yeah definitely w- would you say little naive then not having obviously you're older you're wiser now not having experienced other relationships other fuck-ups little naive back then oh my god completely completely like I look back now and I'm like wow I ignored you know like I was saying I ignored red flags I didn't have boundaries I was such a people pleaser in my early 20s even in my late 20s I still wasn't getting things right in terms of dating but yeah, I look back and it's, you know, I was learning. Um, and I guess I wasn't wise to some things, you know, until a lot later, until I kind of went through it. What advice would you have... Um, so how, how old are you now? You're, you're 30, 31, something like that? Yeah, 31. 
so what advice would you give to 24 year old Stina back then? Oh, well, in my early 20s back then, I would say to me, if it doesn't feel right and you're not feeling comfortable in certain situations or with certain people or your heart is not singing in the right way, get out. You know, you know the answer. That's what I would say. Yeah, that feels easier, like, said than done, though, because I know a lot of people who, like, girlfriends of mine who have been in abusive relationships 23 24 25 and a lot of people are telling them that are oh, he's not right for you you're he's a bit toxic he's controlling he won't let you go out all this sort of stuff but they don't listen because they feel like they're in this trap of like I'm in love with him it, it does it is easier said than done surely completely because when you're in it you don't obviously you don't see the out from an outside point of view. Nobody ever does because it's tunnel vision for, for every, every situation, every relationship. And the, the kind of, you feel trapped because you almost get into a position where you, your self-worth is completely on the floor. So you think, I can't leave. I can't do better. And it almost becomes, I don't want to say a challenge because it's not quite in those terms, but it almost becomes like, I need to make this person love and want me. I'm going to do anything in my power to make sure that they stay with me because I love them. You almost talk yourself into believing that that is exactly how it is and how it's going down. Um, but the psychology of abusive relationships is is quite, it was very interesting and it's extremely hate to say it, but very clever at what an abuser does in, in the initial stages of dating, because they manipulate you. You know, they get you into such a false sense of security that you genuinely feel that you're in love. You genuinely feel that you're on cloud nine because they make you feel that way because they do nice things and they say great things to you. And then ultimately what happens is slowly they start bringing you down a peg or two. So that could be comments, that could be, you know, like you said, controlling, not letting you wear a certain outfit on a night out, you know, asking to check your text messages. And because you're almost trying to fight to get back to the pedestal that they put you on, this is where the psychology comes into play. Because you're never ever going to get back to the, to the pedestal from initially, you just never will. But yeah, so they kind of constantly kind of bring you up and bring you down. And eventually you just work yourself all the way down to the ground to the point where you have dreams of going back to the pedestal, but you can't. And you're not going to leave and you're not going to go anywhere because you feel that you can't because your self-worth is now completely on the floor. What <clears throat> I've never understood. What? Why do you reckon they do it? Do, do you th think men like just want this and women, women, do it as well let's not take that away do you think they just want like this control thing do you think that's how they like get off or what do you think it is it's hard to say because I can't stereotype and I can't pinpoint why because you could go for things like it was their childhood they had controlling parents or they had traumatic experiences themselves and or maybe it's all they've ever known perhaps they had a controlling father or mother and that's their idea of a relationship. They don't know what healthy looks like. So ultimately they see what they see as a kid and they play it out as adults. Or it could be a sense of, you know, control, like you said. 
It could be complete inner jealousy. It could be something down to a personality disorder. Perhaps they're narcissistic. And that's just part of the traits of being a narcissist that you want to abuse and control and manipulate. There's no real answer um, to answer that question. It's, it, it's how long we got, because there's so many reasons. What are the sort of, you, you briefly touched on it, but what are the sort of stages? Is there like a set time frame? So you mentioned they'll put you on a pedestal and then they'll slowly bring you down. Does that happen over like six months? Could it be like two years? What? So there's actually something called, um, it's the narcissistic abuse cycle. Um, and it's in stages. So initially you start with sort of the, the um, idolization stage which is the love bombing, you know, that I mentioned about the pedestal, you know, the acts of service, the gifts that I love you, you're the best thing that ever happened to me. I really believe we're soulmates. You know, you feel, like I said before, you feel like you're on cloud nine. And the ultimate goal of this idolization stage is the manipulation from there, from the abuser's behalf, is to get you into this false sense of security so you feel safe. And then once they believe they've got you, that then moves on to the next stage and that stage by the way that can happen for weeks that could happen for months there's no set time to the manipulation it just totally depends on the people that are in the relationship but when the narc or the abuser should I say really truly believes right I've got I've got my victim they're not going anywhere they will then move to the second stage which is the degrading stage the devalue stage so that's when the comments will start to come in, you know, you sure you want to eat that? You sure you want to wear that? Or perhaps the controlling, I don't want you to go out tonight. Can I read your text? Who are you texting? Or perhaps it's asking for passwords to your social media. And what happens in this stage is they just gradually chip away at you to the point where the real abuse starts to happen. So that could be physical, it could be emotional, it could be verbal, there's, you know, it's abuse. This is the stage of abuse. But like I was saying before, what happens in this stage is either the victim of this abusive relationship will go, no, I deserve better and will hopefully leave. But unfortunately for a lot of people, they don't because they're still holding on to the first stage, the idolization stage. They hold on in the hope that, oh, we can go back to that. This is just a blip in our relationship. You know, I can do better. And they almost fight for that to get that validation again. This is why people stay. And then there's a third stage. And the third stage is basically when the abuser leaves. So they discard you, it's the discard stage. So the abusers abused you, they've done what they needed to do, they've got out as much as they can from you, or perhaps they've met somebody else to abuse and they leave you. They leave you feeling distraught, confused, you feel like you've been chewed up and spat back out again, and you're left feeling what just happened and you ultimately are beside yourself. And then unfortunately, there is a fourth stage. And it doesn't always happen, but it tends to happen often. And I often see this with a lot of cases. It's the Hoover stage. So the abuser or the narcissist will come back to Hoover you to see if they can still manipulate you to see if they can get you back so that they can ultimately start the cycle again. So you do go back to the first stage. But guess what? You also go back to the devalue, the degrading stage. And this cycle can go on and on and on. Is that like a set cycle then? Or could you just like, you get the 
the first stage, which is the compliments, <clears throat> the gifts, the flowers. You're on to the second stage of the degrading. Could it ever go back to the first stage or will it always just get worse? The likelihood of dating an abuser or a narcissist is, in truth, I, I, no, I don't think it can get better. Only if the abuser chooses to be aware of their behavior, goes to extensive therapy, gets their, their situation sorted. But to be honest with you, I wouldn't advise anyone that has been abused by somebody to ever go back, to ever look back. Because ultimately that boundary has been crossed, that damage has been done. Why on earth would you want to date somebody that has had the audacity or the belief or the want or the need, should I say, to abuse you? So to answer your question, can an abuser change? Yes, anyone can change if you put the work into it. But it's going to be years and years of extensive therapy to sort out whatever is going on in their head in order to abuse another person. How how do you get out of that then? Because <clears throat> obviously, the sooner you get out, the easier it will be, let, let's be honest. Ideally, second stage, you want to get out. Harder said than done when you when you believe that you love someone, but got to be done. Of course. And actually, it can even you can even leave at the first stage because there are red flags that you can identify very quickly and very early. You know, if you meet somebody and within two weeks they're telling you that they love you and that they want to be with you and they want to settle, you know, that should be a red flag in your head. Think, you know, that should be alarm bells going, what's going on here? You know, I don't know this person. Why are they trying so hard to, to get me on side to, to, you know, this is clearly manipulation or perhaps someone buying you lots of gifts. Again, is it generosity or is it manipulation? So, you know, you can be very hyper aware in, in the beginning stages. And I would advise anyone that if you are feeling a little tingle of, oh, I'm not so sure on that, or that was weird, or that comment that they said was strange, take your time to get to know somebody. Don't jump head first. And also listen to that intuition. You know, if you are sensing red flags, analyze it. Talk to a friend, talk to your therapist about it. Because the likelihood if you is, if you are sensing a red flag, it is a red flag and it's waving in your face and you need to leave. So ultimately you can leave at the first stage. The second stage, like you were saying, the devalue stage or the abusive stage, should I say, whether that's verbal, emotional, or physical, it depends again, you know, if, if there are, if you are in a verbal and an emotional, uh, emotionally abusive relationship and you don't live with your abuser, then the best thing to do is seek therapy, get support with your friends and your family, you know, really build up that network of people and that security. And ultimately you want to leave and you want to cut all contact and you want to do it safely. And, you know, again, never, like I said, never go back. The tricky part is, is for people that actually live with their abuser. And this is when it comes a little bit more, a little bit more difficult because ultimately you need to get yourself prepared to leave. You can't just leave because that could put you in danger. So again, like I said, get a therapist, get, you know, family and friends, make everyone aware of your situation, find a place of safety, you know, another home, maybe perhaps it's a friend, there's loads of charities that can help, you know, um, I can't think of the names off the top of my head, but uh, Women's Aid, for example, you know, there's lots of websites that can help give you that shelter if you need, if you don't have somewhere, um, if you don't have family and friends close by. Um, 
you know, get your money, your financial self sorted. There's lots of things to think about and to do, you know, again, like I said, it has to be done safely. Um, obviously never tell your abuser you're about to leave because of course they'll either stop you or they'll manipulate you or again, control you. So once you've got your ducks in a row and everything is sorted, then again, leave. And again, go no contact and never look back. But make sure that you have, again, like I said, a network of people that are aware of your situation and that can help you get out safely. Nice. I read something, I think it was on extra.ie, um, that said it was a while ago of course but um you hopped from like boyfriend to boyfriend you didn't have any like real connection with with people um why do you think that was because I think I'm sort of in that stage and that's something that I'm not boyfriend girlfriend but like I'm in that stage and I'm curious as to why I'm sort of doing it (laughs) yeah well, I think for me, I came out of my abusive relationship and I think I felt lost for a long time. And I think if I'm entirely honest, I didn't look deep inside of me and, and I didn't kind of reflect on things and kind of go, am I happy? You know, what, what, you know, I've just gone through a very traumatic experience, you know, take a minute. I didn't want to take a minute. I wanted to block it out and I wanted to get all the validation and all the comfort from other people that I could. But of course I was only chasing this idea. I was chasing this dream because ultimately I wasn't happy in myself. I was incredibly lonely. So I was seeking something in others when actually I could have been working on myself and getting that comfort and that validation on my own. So I was hopping to, I was dating a lot, you know, I was hopping from relationship to relationship. And really it was only until I started having therapy myself where I started like kind of peeling back everything that I'd gone through and what I was going through and what I was experiencing. I realized, oh my God, it's so true and cliche, but happiness comes from within and I need to sort this out. Um, so yeah, I, I just took a step back basically. And I, I had to dig deep. I had to kind of face my inner demons. I had to face the fact that I felt lonely at times. And why was that? And I had to do a bit of soul searching and and a bit of exploration mentally for me. Um, and that's the kind of the beauty of therapy. You find yourself in that space, in that safe space that you create with your therapist. And ultimately you sort out stuff. (laughs) I was, I think, like I said, I was always looking for some validation from other people. I never got it because I just needed to do that for me. And I worked my hardest to do that. I, yeah, I think I'm in that stage. Like I'm really happy in like everything I do in life, but there's always something that's like, you're a little bit lonely. You haven't got like, and I, I never go like looking for relationships either. I just, they just sort of come along but like meaningless flings and all this sort of stuff and it I don't know it feels a bit toxic but I want the validation of you're you're not on your own sort of thing what should I be doing I think firstly I think you need to make a list of what you want you know, look at your life. So you've just t- you've just told me in a short space of time, and I'm coming at you with a wide, broad net here because we've only just met. But you've just told me you're busy and your work's going great for you. So, okay, well, what partner suits would suit you? What are you looking for? 
of course, everyone wants somebody attractive and funny and da da da. But actually, what does that individual, you know, what do they what do they do? How do they spend their their free time, their lifestyle? Does it match and align with yours? So make that list. Be as fussy and selective as you want. Be as shallow as you need to be. It's your list. You don't need to show it to anyone. And everyone that you meet, whether that's on dating apps or networking or, I don't know, going out and getting a coffee and you stumble across somebody, every time you go to entertain that person and you think, yippee, validation because somebody's texting and talking to me, this is great, sit back for a second and actually go, that's great. They like me and I'm enjoying this moment. But actually, do I like them? Are they ticking my boxes? Is this, are they matching the list that I've created? Obviously, no one's going to be perfect. It's not what I'm saying. But you just sometimes need to take a step back and actually go, you need to identify key points in your life and areas that actually, when you do meet somebody, are they going to fit in to your life? So rather than worrying about the validation and, and trying to not be lonely, actually worry about trying to find somebody that's right for you. Hmm. That's hard. That that yeah, that feels a bit hard because my list is quite um so like from like the last few girls that I've dated, they've been like, Oh, give up some spare time, come spend it with me and I'm like, I've got to do work and all this sort of stuff. And I don't know, I feel like I'm too selfish with my list. Um but I think maybe you need to be, I I don't know. You absolutely do. And if those, you know, you're busy, so you perhaps need to date somebody that's equally as busy or is relaxed at the fact that they're not going to see you regularly, you know, and that again will be, that will suit you. But guess what? It suits them too, because they've also got a life and I'm not saying the other girls didn't have a life, but you know, you're again, matching, you're aligned. You can be as selfish as you want because this is your life. Nice. I like that answer. That's a good answer. Um, I'm curious though. Um, I'm sure we've all sort of been through it. Heartbreak, painful, obviously, as I'm sure you know, I know, everyone knows, should know. Um, how do you get over that? Is there a way you can actually get over that? Because the first time I had it, it was like ice cream in bed for like two weeks and stress and no sleep and all this sort of stuff. So, yeah heartbreak I wish there was a pill that you could just buy in Sainsbury's (laughs) and it takes all the the heartbreak away there is no real right answer to this question because heartbreak is different for everybody but ultimately it takes time and I know that that answer is so annoying and frustrating but it's true however when I have clients that are going through heartbreak I obviously allow them in the space of our therapy sessions to grieve. You know, we talk about it, we go through it because sometimes, you know, there's stages of grief, right? There's the stages of breakup too. You know, there's the disbelief, there's the denial, there's the anger, the sadness creeps in. You know, there are are stages uh, to, to heartbreak. So we go through the process and we talk about it. But then once we've kind of done that a few times or however many times the client feels necessary, it's now the action stage. It's like, right, okay, the acceptance stage. It's done. It's over. So what are we going to do? We're going to get you back, healed, and moving forward. So how do you do that? 
well, you go out and you live your life. You do all the things that you always wanted to do or couldn't do when you were in that relationship. You build that identity. So I don't know, perhaps you love football. So, you know, you do love football, Liam, or am I making that up? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I I referee football. Yeah, I do love football. Fine. So you you go and play more football, you create a club, you just do, you throw yourself into projects and into things and into people. You, you spend lots of time with family and friends. You do good deeds, you do charity work, you make your life full. And what happens is in this process of creating that identity, getting your confidence back, doing things for yourself, making yourself feel good, eventually your grief will we'll start to heal. And before you know it, you'll look back and you'll go, oh my God, I've come so far. I've mo- I'm moving on or I have moved on. And by this point, hopefully you would have met somebody else maybe because guess what? You've got such an amazing life because you do X, Y, Z and you've done X, Y, Z. So you become a very interesting person to new candidates that you meet. And as life can be much, it's such a, typical thing in life I always find as soon as you move on or you've moved on to somebody else they, the ex always comes back <laughs> but, but that's how you move on is you start is you focus everything onto you and your life and if you want the science part of it your brain always holds on to memories it's called neural pathways so the brain creates lots of neural pathways with memories And when we grieve or when we go through heartbreak or when we go through significant change in our lives, the neural pathways become slightly broken. And that's really hectic and upsetting for the brain, which ultimately causes us stress, which causes us to feel sad and want to eat ice cream in bed. How you cure that? You create new neural pathways. So you create new memories, which is why it's so important to push yourself and get out there and do things for yourself. That's the science bit. Shit. <laughs> I never thought. <laughs> wow. <laughs> this is like my therapy session. I love this. <laughs> yeah, this isn't going anywhere. It's just my therapy for free. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you an invoice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, invoice me later. Um, I did want to ask you, moving on from like the heartbreak and then you, you obviously go find someone else. I... I think you put this article on your Instagram or I I saw it somewhere and it was like, why Kanye West always dates Kim K lookalikes? Now, I I was curious about this. And to be fair, I didn't actually think about this until my brother said something like a week ago. He's like, you know, your type's literally the same every time. And I never thought about it. Why do you think we've got a type? And why do you think we always keep going back to that same type? Especially if you've been like abused in a relationship. Again, this is going to be a long-winded answer, as it always is with psychology and science. Ultimately, we all do have a type. Some people say, I don't have a type. It doesn't necessarily mean physically. It could actually, like you said, it could, it could be how somebody treats you in the relationship. That's a type. Um, why we have a type? It can be some, simple, simply down to the fact of your childhood, how your parents treated you and how you viewed relationships or how you saw your earliest caregivers, how their relationship was. And that for you, that's your idea of relationships. So you seek that. So 
a lot of people, if they had quite a chaotic uh, childhood or um, perhaps it was traumatic or perhaps it was abusive, they tend to kind of look for, without even realising subconsciously, they'll be attracted to wild individuals or abusive or chaotic people. Um, that's not always necessarily true. Some people grow up and they go, absolutely not, not for me. I, I, do, I saw my, my parents' relationship and oh, I had a terrible childhood myself. I do not want that. And that's, that's great if people can identify that and be aware um but it's it's just familiarity it's, it's what we've always known us humans we love patterns so when you meet somebody and I don't know what your type is I'm gonna make this up they're really funny they're really confident um but they're quite sharp with their tongue if you've grown up with a mother that was perhaps like that or perhaps your previous your earliest girlfriends were like that then it feels very familiar and it feels safe. And instead of your brain going, oh, Liam, not this again. We know this never works out. You ignore that because it's familiar. This is great. So short answer is we have patterns and we are always drawn to that. No matter no matter if it's good or bad, we love a pattern. T- to be fair, that's sort of a nailed on type. Someone who's funny, someone who gives back the same sort of wit I do someone who's got the same sort of arrogance and cockiness I have sorted <laughs> nailed I am um, I did want to ask you there's this women often say this quite a bit actually I more saw it when I was younger but I know they still say it is like oh I do love like a bit of a bad boy all this sort of stuff is there any like logic science behind that sort of yes People love a challenge. It's our ego. You know, if you if you see someone that's not, for example, if, if, if I saw a bad boy who is a notorious womanizer, my ego sees it as a challenge. I am going to make him want me. It's, it's, it's an ego thing. And what else? Secondly, I think people like to fix other people. So maybe there are some individuals that see a broken womanizer and a man that's a Casanova and and going about town. Some people will naturally go, I'm going to save him. Because again, it's ego. I'm going to make him want me and I'm going to make him so dependent on me, he's never going to go. So again, there's lots of reasons why people tend to go for the bad boy, because ultimately it's a challenge. You can't save them though, can you? They can only do that themselves. Like, you you can't, can you? No. You cannot save anyone but yourself. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Just quickly touching on the types bit, I forgot to ask you this. Um, Say you've been, and and you obviously, you have, you've been in an abusive relationship. There'll be other people who have the same sort of type. Do you think you should try and break your type? break out of that habit of going for the same sort of person absolutely if you have I think it's a really good idea and I often do this with clients is to look back is to take a look back at your previous relationships what were they like as individuals what happened in the relationship was there a pattern identified that so for example if you tend to go for 
abusive types or, or whether that's verbal, emotional, physical abusive types, it's really good point to be aware of that and to look at the hook. What hooked you to like that person? What was it? Was it their mysteriousness? Was it the fact that they didn't make much effort with you? Did you get caught up in the abusive cycle like we spoke about earlier? Really identify what it was that made you attracted to them in the first place. And try and understand why that hooked you. And often or not, it always comes down to self-esteem. It comes down to that fact that we were saying earlier about being lonely. I'm going to stay. I'm because, you know, this is as good as it gets for me. Or it's the challenge aspect. You know, I, I've got to make this person want me. Really dig deep. Ideally, go to therapy and get somebody to kind of be a sounding board and talk through it with you. But dig deep and, re and really try and identify why it is that you stay in these abusive cycles or you have these patterns that don't work out well for you in the end and make it a challenge for yourself to stop falling for that trap because it's never going to end well. And once you have that awareness, you can then start meeting healthier individuals who are, guess what, actually right for you and actually a healthier type. Nice. One thing that's really interesting to me, and to be fair, Pandora actually mentioned it the other week when she, she came on this podcast, is that it's really interesting seeing your like transition from like being like an Instagram influencer model, all that sort of stuff, to, to being a therapist and wanting to like help people. What was the reason for the transition? I've always had a love for, for psychology. I've always loved the idea of therapy, especially when I started having therapy myself. I just fell in love with the whole process. It saved my life. It helped me. Um, I didn't just go for my traumatic experiences. I also had past issues in my life and, and other things that I needed to talk through and go, and go over. And like I said, it, it just it absolutely saved me. It changed my life. And I just remember thinking, I, I want to I know more and I want to help other people because it's helped me. And I think it got to the point where I kind of, in my early 20s, I was, I was modeling, I was TV presenting, I was, I was doing all, all the fun things. And I kind of lost track of actually what I wanted to do. Um, and it wasn't really until kind of the pandemic where I sat down, I was like, where does my heart sing? It's psychology, it's it's people, it's helping. I've also, I also grew up with a um, an autistic brother. So I've often, you know, I've been in, a, I'm, I've been around mental health professionals and, 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 you know, carers all my life and psychology, I guess, for that matter. And I think I just realized, I was like, this, this is my calling. And I've been ignoring that because I just kind of follow the path of, oh, I'm going to be like a model and, oh, I'm going to go down this route and, oh, I'm going here and isn't that fun? And it was, it was great fun, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. You know, I wasn't getting fulfillment. I wasn't entirely happy with that. And so, yeah, the pandem pandemic hit. I guess I had a few minutes and moments to myself as we all did. And I thought to myself, right, let's get what I want. So I went and I studied and here we are. <laughs> nice. I read, um, I read an article that said my 70,000 followers regular 
regularly see me drinking champagne on a yacht, driving expensive cars um, from like Mercedes to Porsches, etc. Was this like a legit life or were you just sort of trying to show off, keep up that pravada, trying to keep everyone happy sort of thing? That was my legit life. Yeah. You know, with the modeling and, and the media kind of world. Yeah, it was it was party party. Um, I unfortunately don't own a car because I live in London now. But yeah, we were it was well, I say we, my friends and I, it was it was live live fast, love it. <laughs> but again, it I it was lonely. Because again, I was just, it was kind of just chasing an idea or a dream or, or yeah, it was more an idea, I guess, of like, this is great and everything's happy. But when you get home and the doors close and then it's just you and your thoughts to yourself and you realise, oh, you know, ah, there's more to life than just that. That's when it hit home. And those things just are so irrelevant. And Why didn't you um, change it sooner? Why did it take you to the pandemic to realise that you wanted to change? I think because everything stopped. You know, it's all okay when it's going quick and you're moving with it and it's, oh, this is fun, this is fun, this is great, this is great, keep going, keep going, keep going. And when that's taken away and when that's stopped, you reflect. You have that time to yourself to think. So I just think it was the fact that, I, like I said, the doors shut, everything went quiet. And I just sort of looked deeper in myself and I was like, right, what things do I need to change? What am I happy with? When this pandemic ends or as in when lockdown finishes, what am I going to do differently? And I think the pandemic was awful for all of us. Um, But being the positive person that I am, that there was something I was very lucky in the sense that I actually had that moment to, well, I had many moments, like I said, we all did that moment to myself to really reevaluate what I wanted in life. And I'm really grateful for that. So yeah, I just, I made, I made those changes because it needed to happen. One thing I see quite a bit then is a lot of people like living almost a fake life on social media. You're, you're very honest. I'll admit I've done it in the past. I've posted stuff that isn't true, trying to look better than I am sort of all that sort of bullshit. What sort of advice would you give to people like not being true to themselves on social media? Oh, that's such a good question. I think, and I often say this, I think before you press post or you do a story, take a moment for a second and ask yourself the question, who is this for? Is this genuinely for me because I look great and I'm really happy and I'm loving life and this picture is, it's my life and I'm proud of it and I want to share it? Or is this a case of I need validation and I need people to approve me and my life? Because if it's the latter, I would really consider your reasons for uploading certain images or videos or whatever. Because that's not being true to yourself, that's just wanting validation. But of course, if you are, if your life is genuinely jam packed with amazing, fun things and, and beautiful things, and you want to share it, of course, that's what social media is all about. Do it, absolutely do it. I'm a total advocate for that, but only on the sense that 
firstly, it, it is your life and it's true to yourself, like we were saying, but it's it's not for validation. Nice. Right. So you obviously have your book, not the one, not the one, a woman's guide to identifying red flags. What was your like inspiration behind that? I mean, it's pretty open. It's pretty obvious. But what made you wake up one day and think, I'm going to write a book? Well, again, it was the whole process of therapy for me. So it was not just studying it, but it was also going through it myself and, and having the pandemic, like we said, to kind of sit back and go, right, let's reevaluate everything in my life. And what needed to change was my dating as well. You know, it was a disaster. <laughs> I was dating left, right and centre. And I just was never finding what I wanted because I was just hooking on to the wrong person because I needed that validation or I didn't want to be lonely. I was dating for all the wrong reasons and not for the reasons of actually I need this person and I like this person and let's explore together this world. So it was actually a friend of mine said, you should write a book of all the lessons. Cause you know, often I would reflect and I would talk to friends and about my mad dating experiences. And somebody said, you should write a book. I was a writer, you know, I was a journalist for a brief stint and I thought, and I love writing. And I just thought, yeah, I'm going to do that. And I'm going to incorporate that with therapy and psychology. And, and again, once again, hopefully help other people not get into either abusive or toxic or unhealthy situations like I did, like I experienced. I want, I wanted to share my learnings in the hope that that would prevent somebody from making the mistakes I did. Nice. Incredible. Right. So Stina, the other day I put out a QA and a on um, social media. There were quite a few responses. You, um, you've got quite a following. I'll put it that way. Um, I've picked the best ones cause we'll probably be here for like three hours if we go through them all. Um, so yeah, I thought we'd just go through, through the best ones. The first one is what should I, what should you do if you love somebody, but they don't love you back? or you don't know if they love them back. I'll add the last bit in. Or you don't know if they love you back. Um, Well, firstly, if you don't know that they love you back, ask. Ask where are we going? Communicate. Have a conversation. Sit them down. I really like you, and I like where this situation is going. Do you feel the same? Are we on the same page? But if you have had that conversation, and you know that somebody doesn't love you, like you love them, then you need to get out of that relationship and you need to go and find somebody that can meet you equally in the love department. I, I'll just add on that then. Do, say this person who you love and don't love you back or you don't think they do, are like dating you, they're sleeping with you, all this sort of stuff. Um, is it worth maybe like waiting around just to see if that changes further down the line? What, what do you think? Sure, you can wait, but you might wait and it might not come down to anything. So the quickest, surest way of working it out is to ask, is to communicate, is to have that conversation, as difficult as it might be. But if you are sleeping together and you're dating and you're seeing one another regularly, then you should, you know, you are totally entitled to ask that question. Where are we? What are, what are we? You know, I'm enjoying this. How I'm a bit confused on a certain thing on certain things and I'm getting a mixed signals here and there. I just want to be straight. 
Nice, nice. Um, next one is having um, casual relationships, casual sex, unhealthy. It is unhealthy if you are using it for validation and you're using it to fill a void of loneliness. But if you are having fun and you are both on the same page and you're communicating and you're obviously doing having safe sex and you're being very honest and transparent with each other, then and you're enjoying yourself, then crack on. Nice. Um, next one. My husband is cheating on me and I'm scared to leave. What, what should I do? I'm sorry to hear that. Your husband is cheating on you and you're scared to leave. So this is quite a, I, I don't know, is she scared to leave because she's in an abusive relationship? I'm not sure. So. Yeah, she has, she hasn't said. Say that again. Yeah, she, she hasn't said it. She just put that, that bit. Okay. Let's say that she's not in, in uh, you know, she's not in any danger and her husband is just a lying, cheating person. Um, let's ask, can you ask this question again, Liam? Sorry. <laughs> cool. She just, she just put, my husband is cheating on me and I'm scared to leave. What should I do? Your husband is cheating on you and you are scared to leave. So... Firstly, I would go and get a therapist or I would go and speak to somebody that you trust and that you love. And I would work at knowing and understanding and getting back, should I say, your self-worth. You do not deserve this. Let me ask her this question. Do you deserve to be in a relationship where you're being lied to and cheated on? Absolutely not. Nobody deserves that. It might be very scary at the thought of being alone and and being single and and leaving something like a a marriage, especially. But you're not in a good, healthy situation. So unless your husband and you want to work through things together and save the marriage, great. But if he doesn't and he's continuously cheating and abusing you, your your good nature, then you need to work out. You need to, yeah, you need to find, you need to find your self-worth again and knowing that actually you don't deserve this and don't be frightened of being alone because it's much, much better to be single than be in a relationship like that because that's incredibly toxic. Cool. So the next question is, if you could have dinner with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? And I'll add three people, just three people. Dead or alive. Oh, my God. Taylor Swift. A hundred percent. She is my absolute. I I love her. Like, I want to be her best friend. Um, I love her music. I love her lyrical genius. Just, yeah, her, her, her music. I think we would be best friends. So I would like her at my table. Um, I'd also really like Kanye West because I love him. I love his music again. And who else would I have at the table? I think I would go, my my grandpa, he's no longer here. But I'd love to have him at the table because 
um, he, he passed away when I was quite young. I was about 12. So while I have lovely memories of him, I, I now in my, in my thirties, I look back and I'm like, Oh, I wish he was still around. So I'd have loved to have asked him certain questions or, you know, he was, he was a great character and I'm very close to my dad and, and that's my dad's dad. So I would have, I'd love to have that opportunity again. Amazing. You didn't want to bring your partner along. Uh, I've seen him regularly. <laughs> He's sick <with> me. <laughs> no, I would have him at every table. <laughs> you've got to add him in. Um, two more then. How how do you know when you found happiness slash the one? Oh, good question. I think you just know. I think you, everything is, is easy breezy. You have found, it's like hanging out with your best friend, essentially. You know, if the, if there, you know, there's no, how should I put this? It's just easy. Not all relationships are easy, not even the healthiest ones. They can also be just as difficult, but, but you are comfortable. You don't have to second guess things or overthink things. It just is. You're not rocked. You're not anxious. You don't have a horrible gut feeling that they're cheating on you or they're lying or you don't feel insecure. You just feel at peace, reassured at least 99% of the time. It's just a nice, wholesome feeling, just like you would with somebody that you love and care about. So a best friend or a family member. It's that same feeling. Nice. And it is it is actually really good to because you obviously you look so happy and then James came back yesterday didn't he from from Norway and it's just so good to see like how happy you are and like that's like really refreshing you, you can sort of tell <laughs> it's good yeah well we were we've been friends for years so we've we've known each other for years and years and years so we actually had that foundation we had that friendship base I always always fancied him I fancied the pants of him but I, we just kind of friend zoned each other <laughs> because, you know, I was dating and so was he and, and that was that. And um, I guess we kind of thought each other were not accessible in, in that sense. Um, so we just created a great foundation. We, we've, yeah, like I said, we've been friends for four or five years now. And then, yeah we actually had the conversation one day and we were like, what are we doing? We really like each other. We should date. <laughs> and that's how it kind of came about. Nice. <clears throat> Love that. That's so good. Right. The final one then um, is, do you like chicken nuggets? It's the famous question on this podcast. <gasps> oh my God. I love chicken nuggets. Who doesn't like chicken nuggets? Do some people say they don't? You don't. No, no, I love them. No, don't be silly. Don't be silly. Um, but I've I've had I've had people on this podcast who who haven't liked chicken nuggets. Um, and they've not made the cut. I've had to delete their episode. No, I'm joking. But they have they have said they have <laughs> they don't like them. And then you get the milkshake and you dip them in the milkshake and. <laughs> oh. No, I, that's too far. I don't think I would dip it in a milkshake. The ketchup, yeah. Oh, you're making me so hungry. I'm going to order it. I know. I didn't really. 
I I didn't realize how much like options there were in London. I was there the other day, and it was just like my friends. I was they were like get a Deliveroo. We we don't have Deliveroo down here in Exeter, but they're like download Deliveroo, and I was like, oh my days. There's so much stuff. I was yeah, it was pigged out in the hotel. It's funny, isn't it, that you guys don't have delivery? Because I, like I was saying to you, I'm from Somerset originally, and I'm pretty sure they don't have delivery there either. They even struggle with Uber in some places. Like, it's hard to like just. I just in London, it's just you have everything on your doorstep. It's it's pretty jam. Everything's so fast up there, though. Like you, you're obviously from Somerset, so you on like the difference. You get on the tube, and everyone's just like in a mad rush, and it's just. It's a fast life. I don't like it. <laughs> it is. Yeah. And I think that's fine. I think you're either you're either ready for that and you want that or you or you don't. Because half of my family, they're all they're all back in Somerset. Only a few of us came to London and it's so interesting. Cause when my, my family from Somerset come down, it's like like old country mice coming to the big city <laughs> with us city rats. They don't know what to do with themselves. <laughs> I, I did end up at the um the Bermondsey Beer Mile. I don't know if you've ever been there, um, but I'd highly recommend that. Yeah, I ended up there. Some good cider there. Yeah, really good. Amazing, but Stina, th- thank you um so much for coming on. I've I've really enjoyed it. It's been such a great conversation. Um, yeah, I'm really grateful. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Liam. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Online Disruptor. I hope you really enjoyed it. As mentioned earlier, if you could just leave it a quick review, a thumbs up, it would honestly mean the world. And it will mean that we can continue to bring on these exciting guests. Thank you so much. Have a great week and see you next week.